Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we welcome to the show Kelly Herb, also known as The Tax Girl. She's joining us to talk all things taxes. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I am Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, have you come through your post-Thanksgiving turkey food coma at this point? I think so. I think I have. How about you? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I've, I've woken back up feeling good. So my objective over Thanksgiving was to make it through Peter Jackson's Get Back, the Beatles documentary. Uh, which is in three parts, each very long. I haven't succeeded quite yet in finishing, but I am I'm very close. And for those who haven't checked it out on Disney Plus, it is amazing. I have confidence in you, Dan. I'm certain that you can get there. Well, listen, I really don't want to take too much time because we've got a fabulous guest this week. And we've got an interview with another podcaster and tax expert. This week, we welcome Kelly Herb, the tax girl, to the show. So let's take everyone over to that interview with her now. Joining us on today's show, we welcome the tax girl, Kelly Phillips-Herb. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a huge list of questions for you on all things tax, but wanted to welcome you to check your balances. Oh, thank you for having me, and I'm really excited to talk tax. So uh, just to introduce your background, you are a tax attorney. You're the yes. managing shareholder at the Herb Law Firm in Pennsylvania. You've contributed to a huge list that would take our entire show time to go through of publications ranging from CNN Money, CNBC, Reuters, all sorts of great places that you've contributed. Let's start with just your day-to-day practice. The actual folks that you serve, you help. Can you tell us kind of what your practice is oriented towards and and maybe how the tax attorney world uh, compares to, to a CPA or something that I think most folks have experience interacting with? Sure. So I'll talk a little bit about being a tax attorney with the... Um with the surprise that I don't do it uh, full time right now because I am at Bloomberg um, writing for them. But I will talk about being a tax attorney because it's what I've done my my whole adult life. And um, I'm still a tax attorney and I uh, love it. So I think one of the differences, well, I'll kind of back up. So I started out as a planner. Um, so a lot of what I did was tax planning, specifically estate tax, um, back in the day when the um, exemption wasn't nearly as high as it is today. Um, so a lot more middle class folks were impacted by the estate tax. But I did high net worth uh, estate tax planning. And um, I liked it, but I didn't love it. Like I liked the planning aspect of it. But one of the things that I love about tax that I didn't love as much in the practice that I was in when I first started is that tax is so new and different and changing all the time. And that's what keeps it fun, right? Um, A lot of estate tax planning, especially early on, was very, I I used the term vanilla, which isn't completely fair. Um, There's a lot more that happened as my career went along. I, I, I got to do some 
different kinds of sophisticated tax planning. And that was really fun for me. Um, but I, one of the things that I love about tax generally is that I love the idea that it's something different every day. And for a while, that wasn't the case. Um, so I started thinking about what I wanted to do next and eventually ended up opening my own practice with my husband. Um, he is an international corporate lawyer. He does nothing tax. Um, I don't speak with his clients much in the beginning, at least, because his clients were a lot of Germans in particular. I don't speak any German. He's fluent. Um, but one of the things that we realized, I started doing some estate planning for some of his clients, his high net worth clients, and realized that they had other issues, um, specifically around uh, FATCA. Um, and so little by little, as we grew the practice and started bringing other people on who were doing more of the estate tax, some of the, the vanilla estate tax work, I started doing more um, income tax planning, especially as it had to do with uh, international. And that ended up evolving into controversy work because we found out that some of those people were not as compliant as maybe they should be. Um, and that was around the time of the big FBAR crackdown. Um, and so a lot of my work turned to that. And again, that's one of the things I love about the profession is I do think that you have the ability, at least on the attorney side, I know it's not always as fluid on the CPA side, depending on how and where you practice. But on the tax attorney side, there's a lot of opportunity to pivot into new spaces, but still be within like basically your niche. So I wasn't, you know, all of a sudden picking up S-Corps or anything like that. I wasn't, um, you know, it was still kind of international income tax, estate world focused. Um, and the FBAR part in particular was really fun for me. So I did a lot of controversy work. Um, and so day to day would just be, you know, who, who am I helping today? And, and what is their problem? Because my practice eventually became problem solving. So one of the things that you said was particularly exciting about the tax world is that things are changing all the time. Yes. For the average person, that is probably the most frustrating aspect of the tax world. How do you propose that the average person engage with this ever-changing code of taxes? So you know, people feel compelled to be responding to new information and new laws that are written, but it's also so hard to stay on top of it. So do you have any tips for you know, people listening as to how they should go about just thinking about their their annual tax prep? Oh, so I think that's a great question for a lot of reasons. And and to be clear, the planner side of me absolutely hates the changes, right? The controversy side of me <laughs> enjoys it. Um, you know, I do I do find it frustrating actually for taxpayers. I don't think it should change as quickly as it has. I do think that there it's important for Congress to constantly revisit the system and figure out what's working and what's not. One of the things, if you go back historically and look at some of the big tax changes that have happened, a lot of times they were responses to things and it made sense, like all the way back to the Reagan years, right? Like something isn't working, how do we fix it? That's not really where we are right now <laughs> in terms of tax, uh, changes to the tax code. So I do think it's frustrating. I think one of the things that's really important for taxpayers is to have a great team. Um, this is something I talk about a lot on my blog and I talk about it a lot on my podcast is, um, you know, early on in, in the show, you asked me, you know, the difference, what, what might be the difference between what I do and a CPA. Um, you know, I don't prepare returns, for example. Some tax attorneys might, but I don't. Um, I think it's really important to have a great team around you, somebody who can advise you of changes, somebody who can take care of your prep, somebody who can help you out with planning. That's not always the same person. 
Um, I, I like, as I mentioned, doing planning and controversy work, I should not be doing your whole tax picture. And I would be worried if I were a tax payer in this climate, if I only had one person. Um, and I think the same for business owners. Like, I think there is value in having an additional set of eyeballs looking at something, which might be why, for example, you might want somebody to be a different payroll tax person than is your bookkeeper. Maybe not, you know, it depends, but I think that there's some value to that. Um, for everyday taxpayers, you know, beyond having a team, I think it's really nearly impossible <laughs> to keep up with everything that's happening. So I think you find some some kind of medium that you feel comfortable with and surround yourself with good people there. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe if you like social media, you find great people on Twitter that you can follow who are saying smart things, or maybe that's Facebook, or maybe it's a blog, or maybe it's a journal that you get. Like, but I would, I would try to find this trusted source of information and kind of focus on people that you trust who are smart in that area so that you don't get overloaded. Because I do think one of the problems is that when you have a bazillion headlines screaming at you all day long, it's so easy to get lost. And then I think what happens is people just stop paying attention, right? So like, you don't know what's happened for the last two years, because you couldn't make sense of the headlines, so you just stop listening. And I think we saw a lot of that with like stimulus checks. Like how many times did we see fourth stimulus check coming, fifth stimulus check coming when it wasn't true. And so I think people just stopped paying attention. So I think really good advice would be to find an area that you feel comfortable again, whether it's Instagram or whatever, find smart people and follow somebody who's going to give you information in bite-sized pieces. Because I do think that there's a danger in not paying attention. I would agree. And and I'm just going to put in a plug for your show because I think it's fantastic, the Tax Thanks. Girl podcast. And uh, I think there are some changes that we want to talk about, but so much of it gets published even before the changes are yes. real, right? Even as the things are proposed and you start reading it and you can panic a little bit. Uh, and speaking of another panic moment that I had personally, Dan and I are fairly new business owners. We started our practice and, and uh, separated from a larger company at the end of last mm -hmm. year. And as I was listening to your show, I kept hearing you guys talk about Wayfair. And the more I looked and the more I dug, I started like freaking out because really the, the Wayfair versus South Dakota law and and kind of can I guess I'm going to step back. Can you take us through the biggest impacts of that? Because uh, as a business owner that has clients in multiple states, I, I started freaking out. Well, don't freak out because one of the things that I do think as a controversy attorney, um, one of the things I like to tell my clients that everything's fixable, right? Um, some of it's e more easily fixed than others, um, but everything's fixable. So don't freak out. Um, but one of the things that I do think uh, that came out of Wayfair. Um, is that so for years, we have this idea of nexus and nexus is in the tax and law world, the idea that you have to have a, com a connection, a taxpayer has to have a connection to a state or a country or a taxing authority for them to impose a tax on you. So like, I can't be taxed in um, Mexico, because I don't do, I don't do business there, right? I don't, I don't have a connection there. But once you establish a connection, um, you could be subject to tax under the constitution. So the question has been for years, like what is that connection, right? And so, you know, there's been a lot of case law over the years as retail and, and business has developed. And it started with, well, do you have a physical, you know, brick and mortar store? If you have a brick and mortar store in a state, then sure, they can tax you, right? And then what about mail order catalogs? And now we don't do that as much anymore. So the next big 
you know, frontier was the internet. And that's really where Wayfair kind of came in. And it was this idea of, can you, can a state impose sales tax um, on a taxpayer uh, based on an internet connection? Like, can you have nexus through the internet? That's kind of, I'm oversimplifying it because there's a lot that went into it and a lot of... uh, a, a lot of uh, a case law that they looked at. They looked at Quill. They looked at these these cases that we, uh, you know, Bella Haas. That th- these cases that were around for a while, and they were saying like, what constitutes nexus? And states are always trying to like, what's next? Like Massachusetts was like saying, you know what? If you have cookies, if you put cookies from your website onto a taxpayer's um, uh, internet on, onto the computer, we're going to say that's nexus, right? Like, and, and they took that back pretty quickly because there were a whole bunch of people that were like, we're going to challenge you. But states are always looking for more income. So they're always thinking in terms of what is doing business and what is that connection? And so what Wayfair was asked to clarify, which ironically not, it clarified it, but then of course opened the next big question is what constitutes nexus? And pretty much where things are now with the understanding as we discussed at the beginning that things are fluid and always changing but pretty much what where most states come down is if you're actively pursuing business in the state then that's nexus right if you if you have an internet presence that I can, you know, my, my parents live in North Carolina. So well, that's a terrible, um, that's a terrible uh, example that I'm about to give you. My brother lives in South Carolina. So um, <laughs> I don't do business in South Carolina ever. I don't practice law there. I don't, um, you know, I might go to the beach or something, but like, I don't do business in uh, Myrtle Beach if or in South Carolina. If you go to my website from South Carolina, that's not enough to constitute presence. Um, if, however, I'm selling something on Etsy and I start selling in South Carolina, is that presence? Most most taxing authorities would say yes. So where it gets hazy are things like services. And that's why I said South Carolina, because I don't offer services in South Carolina because I'm not licensed in South Carolina. The reason North Carolina is a particularly kind of weird example that I almost started to give is because I actually am licensed to do pro bono in North Carolina through legal aid. So it's a little little bit of a connection, arguably. But just having an internet presence doesn't necessarily equate to Nexus. And I think that's what scares people. And that might have been what scared you. Um, but that, but that's not in itself. But when you start soliciting and if you start and, and most most toxic authorities, it's beyond just soliciting. Right. It's actually doing business. So if you are offering you know, accounting services to someone in Nebraska, then I would argue that you probably have nexus there for purposes of some kinds of tax where that gets really interesting. And I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it, but where that gets really interesting is with remote work. Are we now with uh, employees scattered about? Are we now creating nexus in different places for sales tax and possibly corporate income tax? Um, but the idea of nexus, just think of it as connection. And if you don't have like a measurable connection to most states, you probably don't have a, a tax obligation. And, and again, with the understanding, with the caveat, because I'm a lawyer and I like caveats, um, is that uh, you know there are some exceptions to that, but that's that's the general rule. Yeah, the the thing that that particularly worried me, and and you don't have to answer this for our business, but um, you know we're registered in Virginia and mm-hmm. Maryland as our primary states. I'm in Virginia, Dan's in Maryland, but there's a de minimis rule uh, with where we can have clients, and we can have up to five clients in almost any state uh, except Louisiana and Texas, 
Uh, and we do uh, with this podcast. We've had folks reach out to us and they've been in places like Illinois and elsewhere that have said, hey, can you work with me? And we can, uh, according to our state rules, because of that de minimis rule. And then I started going, oh, man, are we going to be on the hook for every single state that we have a client in? And Dan looked at it. and I think we're at least OK until we get bigger than we are today. But uh who knows? That's up to Dan's interpretation and making sure that we don't all go to jail. My unprofessional interpretation when he called me with my family on a Friday night <laughs> in a panic. But the, but the crazy <laughs> thing about that, and this is the, not meant to scare you more, but the crazy thing about that, and it's something, it's one of the reasons I've had more than one guest on my podcast talking about Wayfair, is that um, there is no uniformity from state to state. So if you're if you're thinking to yourself and I know you're talking about you're talking about ethics rules in terms of de minimis. But if you're if you're thinking about like, you know, in Pennsylvania is it day 1 that subjects you to sales tax? If you were in another state where you had to, you know, hit a threshold of like $500 or $5,000 or whatever that number is, that is where I do think that it scares small businesses in particular, because if you are doing business in other states, what do you do and what are you subject to in those states? And that can change literally just going across the border. And, and that is what I think of when, you know, when you look at things like the, the streamlined sales uh, tax agreements and I know states are, are reluctant to get on board with that, but for taxpayers, it would make life a lot easier because right now, um, you know, a company like Amazon has the money to make sure that they're being compliant and they have the technology already built so that when they ship something off to you, sales tax is accounted for, you know, you, you can rest a little easy if you're um, go through the, the Amazon platform. Whereas if I'm just selling, you know, gnomes that I make out of my home, um, it's a little harder for a one person, uh, like a one person band, right? So I think that that's where small businesses in particular get a little frightened. So speaking of controversy, mm -hmm. you mentioned you like tax controversy. Yes. One of my favorite things I came across uh, was something that the book you had written, Home Sweet Rental. Was that it? Oh, but yes. Yes. It's a, it's a, it's a few years at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so Home Sweet Rental, busting the hype of home ownership. Yes. Apparently quite controversial, yes. but you're in really good company because Ross and I have developed a reputation on this podcast for being real estate bears. Uh, we we gripe about home ownership constantly, and um, it's nice to know we're in good company. Well, be aware because the the industry. So first of all, some of my best friends are realtors, so it's not anything. It's not a slam on realtors, but but the industry as a whole can be very aggressive, as you may know. Then, um, and when I first wrote the article that ended up being the inspiration for the book. Um, people were calling my office from all over the country and saying amazingly mean things. Like I had people say stuff about my kids. I mean, like that had nothing to do with buying a home because people feel so strongly about home ownership and they feel like if you don't own a home, you're just stupid. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the text of what I was getting. And I felt so bad, so bad for my assistant because she was sometimes manning the phones when people would call and just scream because they were angry. And this was, um, the article was on Forbes and it did very, very well, but there was a section of the population that was very angry. And the irony of all of this is that I, you know, I have been a landlord many times over. I am not, um, I, I've owned real estate as a homeowner. I do now. Um, I've owned, I've rented several times, and I've also been a landlord. I don't 
I'm not anti-real estate. I just think people should be smart and make sure that when they're making decisions, especially if they're treating it as an investment, which a lot of people in this country do, that you're smart about it. That's all. And uh, that is, um, I think that if you suggest sometimes that you ask questions and think about whether or not the tax benefit was actually where my article was about, does the tax benefit justify the increased cost? And that was, um, I, I got smacked for that a lot. And ironically, of course, the thing that I worried about happening happened during the TCJA, which is that people had been buying a ton of house based on the promise that they were always going to be able to deduct uh, their real estate taxes and their mortgage in full, right? This was, that's the myth that everybody tells you. And then we have TCJA, I'm in the Northeast and y'all, I think you said Virginia, those are places where property taxes can get above that $10,000 cap combined with income taxes pretty quickly. So that's capped. And now we're looking at, you know, historic home uh, sales where we're topping a million and mortgages are capped. And so I think that you just have to make sure you're buying a house for the right reasons. If you love the house, buy the house, but don't have somebody tell you to buy more house because you can deduct it. I think we would 100% agree with that. So yeah, we're, we're very much in alignment. And it's not that we hate real estate ownership either. I, I think that we sometimes poke at it being thought of as this incredible investment. And, and that's that's exactly what it is. It's We like to kind of poke the bear mm-hmm. in that space, not necessarily that you shouldn't own a home. So uh, just to clarify our, our position. Yeah, and my, well. my husband's father, um, he was a small business owner and um, his his retirement was funded on real estate. So I actually do agree that there are times when it makes sense. I just really want people to be smart and thoughtful. And I think sometimes, especially like when we have an economy like we do right now, where people are buying without um, doing inspections and they're just, you know, I had a client actually who um, last year, sold a house, uh, needed to sell the house very quickly. And um, it was under, they were underwater. And the amount of money they got over, I think it was 250 cash over what they had asked for. Um, And that kind of sometimes impulsive decision making, I just think needs to be more thoughtful. Um, Because if my clients were underwater, and I'm not saying that they made great uh, choices, like uh, everybody's in a different space, right? But if they're underwater with two mortgages, and you're paying a quarter of a million dollars over what they already owed, I just think you should, you know, make sure you're looking at all sides of that deal. And, and not being led by the tax tail, right? So that's always what I say. Don't let the tax tail wag the dog. That's my my big takeaway on the, the real estate side is when you're looking at it, just don't let the, the whisperings of tax savings cloud your judgment on whether or not otherwise it makes good financial and practical sense. Because it might. I mean, I loved renting when we rented, but we bought now because it made sense at the time. Like it, it makes sense occasionally. <laughs> So uh, this is a little bit more of a philosophical question, but uh, anecdotally, Mm -hmm. I I see around here that uh, the local government seems to do a lot of things to kind of raise revenue without saying that they're Mm -hmm. raising taxes. Uh, We see some private-public partnerships on road projects, a lot more toll lanes are being added, things where they go, well, your tax rate didn't go up, but the reality is that if you live here and you do business here and you have to move around at all, you're going to be paying for this in one way or another. Um, I also think that that was a little bit true with things like the tariffs, which which were you know basically increasing costs on things and and adding to underlying expenses. 
is that a trend that you see everywhere that that governments are kind of raising revenue, but it's almost taboo to raise the rate on people. And so they're just kind of like looking for other ways to plug oh, the hole. A thousand percent. Yeah. And you see it in other ways too, right? Like let's increase the base. Um, so we'll just subject more people to tax. We won't raise the 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 rate, as you mentioned, or um, you see it with sales tax. We're going to tax more kinds of things. We're going to keep the rate the same. So in Pennsylvania, for example, they were looking at taxing more services like legal services um, and in a way so that they could, you know, argue sales tax rates haven't gone up. But look, we have more money in the coffers. Um, also expanding uh, the idea of what things mean. So, you know, what is candy? What is, you know, what constitutes cigarettes or vapes? Do we're going to count that? You know, so I think that not only is it the kinds of things that you're mentioning that they don't even call taxes, but even within, you know, the, the tax world, they're looking at ways to expand the base um, and tax more things without raising those rates because it's not popular. Things like that just make it so much harder as a taxpayer to evaluate decisions. So I'm working with several people who are exploring relocating in retirement. Mm -hmm. And when we're thinking about the cost of relocating to different areas, it is so difficult to incorporate all those different things because it's not just income tax, right? It's sale tax, property tax, services, all these different things that are going to impact the cost of living. So we talked about how difficult it is to be a business owner navigating this increasingly remote world with digital presence. But even just as a taxpayer, making decisions that are going to come up periodically is, is so challenging. Yeah, you see people going to Florida because there's no income tax. And and I always ask the question, do you think Florida runs without any revenue, right? It, of course not. They just are going to tax different things. And if you don't understand those, it's tough to make an informed choice. Right. And I was going to say like you, that your clients are, are lucky that you're actually thinking about it in a broad way, because that is one of the things that kind of drives me nuts is when people talk about relocating Florida being a prime example of Florida and Texas right now, everybody's, you know, pointing the finger and say, go there. Um, and there's really not the kind of analysis sometimes that there should be. And I will say an, a great example, um, Bloomberg uh, opinion, there was a recent, and I, I cannot recall the author off the top of my head, just did a piece about Texas trying to attract businesses and how they are doing it by this, you know, we're tax favored. But if you actually look at the cost of doing business in Texas, it's not as clear cut as Texas would have you believe. And they actually cited some statistics where the companies that were allegedly leaving California in particular for Texas were actually not necessarily better off. So I think that's a great point that you have to look at the totality of, you know, property taxes, real estate taxes, what kind of sales taxes, how big is the base, is food taxed, is it not? And in Florida, another um, thing that kind of gets people is they have, uh, and we joke about this, I, I mentioned that I started off in the States, um, it is uh, not cheap to die in Florida. So, um, you know, and, and it makes sense because they have a lot of older population. They're all moving down there for a reason. But you know what? It's a lot cheaper to die in a state like Pennsylvania. So, uh, you know, once you add in the kind of the intangibles that you're also mentioning, like there are fees for probate and fees for legal uh, that are required in Florida that might not be required in other states. So can we talk a little bit about Roth usage. And I know that this is kind of a, a hot topic right now because it's being changed and and we've just seen some shift in terms of what's going to be allowed uh, with the elimination of like the mega mm-hmm. backdoor and the phasing out of Roth conversions. But what what's your view, I guess, in, in general on how the, the government is trying to treat this? What are they actually trying to encourage here? Because it looks like they're trying to get a bunch of people to do the conversions 
now drag some of that tax revenue forward and then close the so door? So that's a it's an interesting question. Um, I, I feel like I'm going to like, you're going to get a lot of hate mail because I'm now talking about real estates and Roths, which I know I have unpopular opinions on both of these things. Um, so for the Roth, so the thing about my, my philosophy on Roths is the same as real estate, to be honest. Um, I feel like it can be a really smart tool for a lot of people, but you have to look at the bigger picture and understand what you're doing. Uh, and what you just said about government, you know, I don't want to speculate what governments are doing, but here, but I'm gonna. Um, I think that what uh, the government is doing right now, if you do a Roth conversion, right, if you're going to if you're going to pay tax now so that you don't have to pay tax later, that might be really smart, right, from a from a financial perspective. The government wants your money now. Everybody wants a, a dollar today instead of a dollar tomorrow, right? Because you never know what's going to happen with inflation and everything. So governments would rather have your money now. So by encouraging conversions, um, they're going to get tax dollars today instead of waiting for uh, entire generations to retire um, and I think that, you know, when we look at the deficit and where we are, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, are we going to raise rates or do we just do something else? Well, this is sort of expanding the base, right? It's the same amount of dollars. It's you're not, you know, they are not changing the, the tax rate on that conversion. They're just saying do it now rather than later. Um, it does make sense, I actually think, with tax rates being historic. I'm not going to say historically low, but they're they're low, um, relatively speaking, for some folks to to make a conversion or to consider a Roth. Um, what makes me nervous, though, is when you have high wage earners um, being uh, directed to do conversions at a high rate, like a lot of uh, conversion at one time. Um, so if if I'm doing well, let's say. I mean, I sure hope this isn't the peak of my career, but let's just say that it is. If I'm at the top tax rate that I'll ever be at, does it make sense for me to turn all of my retirement uh, dollars today into a Roth? Probably not, because, you know, I, chances are I'll be making later uh, less money and paying a lower rate in the future, right? Once I'm retired. So, you know, does it make sense now? However, if I'm in my 20s and I'm not making as much money as maybe I think I'm going to make in 20 or 30 years, why not put that money in a Roth? And if I'm a high wage earner and I have outside money that I can pay the tax uh, on the conversion with, then that's also smart, right? Because I can convert the whole thing. So there's lots of situations where a conversion makes sense. And for, I guess, for those, I'm hoping folks know what we're talking about, but when you take a, um, when, when you convert money to a, when you put money into a Roth, you pay the tax now so that when you take it out, it's tax-free later, as opposed to a traditional retirement account where you might get a deduction depending on the situation now, but the idea is that you'll pay the tax on it later. So it's sort of the flip of a traditional retirement account. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of, a lot of good use for Roths right now. And I don't want to discourage them. What I get nervous about is this whole one size fits all planning, right? Like it's good for everybody because it's not good for everybody. You need to look at your financial situation. Are you being bumped into a higher tax bracket if you do a conversion? Does it make sense? Do you have outside assets? I just think there's a lot to think about. And sometimes when you hear, you know, a 30 second soundbite on TikTok or you look at a headline, you think it works for everybody when it doesn't.
So I love that you mentioned TikTok because one of the things that came up, and <clears throat> you may have even mentioned this on your show, and I, I'm I'm forgetting exactly where I heard it, but was this notion of putting your home mm-hmm. into an LLC, which I can't come up with an argument for if we're talking about your primary residence. I can certainly come up with arguments for if it's an investment there is property. One. <laughs> I would say, is there ever a reason to I do mean, that? I don't want to say ever because well, I'm sure some clever planner somewhere may be able to justify it under some circumstance. However, looking at the criteria, if it's heavily personal use, I don't know how you justify that as a business expense. Um, yes, I have talked about this on TikTok, and I've also done a video on this for uh, Bloomberg. Um, one of the things, uh, you know, it's this whole idea that it's 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 all about LLCs, right? Like LLCs, people think of LLCs as a, like magic. So if it's in an LLC, it's deductible, even if it wouldn't have been otherwise. It's the way people like to... Uh, characterize it, especially on TikTok and um, and Twitter, which I love Twitter, but you know, nuance can be lost in 140 characters. So I, this idea that you can buy a car in an LLC and now all of a sudden it's a company car or, you know, convert all of your, you know, assets into an LLC and all of a sudden it's a business. No, um, it still has to be a bona fide trader business and it still has to have a business purpose. And, you know, I always say, um, in my articles, you know, you think about the the big two questions. You know, is this ordinary and necessary <laughs> uh, for for my for my business? It, it has to be to be um, deductible, um, and you know, does it have a business purpose? So I think that that there's a lot of people who think that they're clever because they've read something somewhere and, you know, and, and maybe they're entertaining and if they can be entertaining and people pay attention to them for 45 seconds, they feel like they've saved thousands of dollars in taxes because they've outwitted somebody like they're smarter than their CPA because they watch TikTok and, um, and I, and I should say that I actually do have friends that do actual tax stuff on TikTok. And I think there definitely, it's a platform that attracts users. And I think there are smart people on TikTok. I think there are smart people on Instagram offering really good tax advice. I would just say most of the good ones will tell you inside of what they're doing, that th- there's some nuance and that you should uh, consult with the tax professional before, you know, running out to the internet and doing an, an LLC online so that you can deduct everything on your 1040. Well, speaking of good places for content, I'm going to put in one more plug for your show, which is the Tax Girl podcast. Kelly, okay. this has been wonderful. I could sit and talk to you about this stuff all day. We really enjoy you being a part of our show today. Thanks. I had so much fun. And as I'm sure you could tell, I could talk about tax all day long. We'll get you back for that and more controversial takes. We'll, we'll take the hate mail from now on. Oh, awesome. <laughs> then I'll definitely be back. <laughs> Once again, a huge thank you to Kelly for deciding to come on our show this week. You can catch her podcast. We're going to put a link to it in the description below. If you've got things that you would like us to be talking about as part of our show, check your balances at outlook.com is always the email address you can find us. And we're also happy to still send out a check your balances mug. We've been shipping those all across the country to the folks that have been submitting and writing in some questions. Dan, I've got to tell you, I love how Kelly ends her podcast. The paying taxes is painful, but listening to people talk about them shouldn't have to be. That's an awesome ending for a tax podcast, isn't it? It is. And she seriously delivers because when you hear talking taxes, I bring out my pillow and my blanket and I'm ready to go to sleep. But it is anything but that with her. So we really appreciate her joining us. And she is a great listen, uh, the Tax Girl podcast. 
It it literally reminds me in some ways of kind of how financial planners talk to each other, right? It's like being in the room with the folks of that profession. That's kind of how her podcast feels to me, which I really appreciate because you're really getting kind of that higher level of discussion where they're kind of talking to each other already with the assumption that they know some of the basics. And they do still kind of go back and cover some of it, but it does feel like the 202 class for somebody that's listening to a podcast. That's a great way to describe it. Tax 202. That's it. Uh, Well, thanks again, everybody, for joining us this week. We hope to catch you next time on Check Your Balances. (laughs) 